Today's podcast has been brought to you by Green Shoe Studio. Headline edition, July 8th, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Really, the way I became involved in this was I received a telephone call from the mortuary officer out at the Walker Army Airfield Base. And uh, he was inquiring about what would be the smallest possible casket that we could get that would be hermetically sealed. He wanted to know if we had any in stock, and I said, no, but I, if I can make a call to Amarillo, I can have him in, you know, by 7 o'clock the next morning on the truck. So he said, I'll get back to you. That was the first contact that I had with the base. The man you just heard was Mr. Greg Dennis, but we'll tell you more about him in just a moment. In 1947, an airborne object crashed on a ranch near Roswell, New Mexico. Explanations of what took place are based on both official and unofficial communications. Although the crash is attributed to a secret U.S. military Air Force surveillance balloon by the U.S. government, the most famous explanation of what occurred is that the object was a spacecraft containing extraterrestrial life. Since the late 1970s, the Roswell incident has been the subject of much controversy and conspiracy theories have arisen about the event. Colonel William Blanchard, commander of the 509th Bomb Group, issued a press release stating that the wreckage of a crashed disc had been recovered. A second press release was issued from the office of General Roger Ramey within hours of the first press release. Ramey was commander of the 8th Air Force at Fort Worth Army Airfield in Fort Worth, Texas. The second press release rescinded the first press release and claimed that officers of the 509th Bomb Group had incorrectly identified the weather balloon and its radar reflector as a crashed disc. The legend of America's most famous brush with aliens was born. Hello everyone and welcome to Somewhat Skeptical, where we explore the odd, the obscure, and the unexplainable. My name is Elizabeth. The United States Armed Forces maintains that what was recovered near Roswell was debris from the crash of an experimental high-altitude surveillance balloon belonging to what was then a classified top-secret program named Project Mogul. In contrast, many UFO proponents maintain that the alien craft was found, its occupants were captured, and that the military engaged in a massive cover-up. The Roswell incident has turned into a widely known pop culture phenomenon, making the name Roswell synonymous with UFOs. Roswell has become the most publicized of all alleged UFO incidents. In early July, W.W. Brazel, the foreman of the J.B. Foster Ranch, rode out to check his sheep after a night of intense thunderstorms. Brazel discovered a large amount of unusual debris scattered across one of the ranch's pastures. He took some pieces of the debris, showed them to some of his friends and neighbors, and eventually contacted Chavez County Sheriff George Wilcox. 
Suspecting the materials described by Brazel might be connected with military operations, Wilcox notified authorities at the Roswell Army Airfield for assistance in the matter. Brazel was harassed so much that he eventually regretted reporting his findings to the Chavez County Sheriff. Now let's go back to Mr. Dennis. Forty-five minutes later, Dennis received another call. It was the base again. They asked him to go ahead with an explanation on how to store the bodies, just in case a situation came up where they'd need to know the proper procedures. They wanted to make sure the method would keep the tissue intact and not change anything about the DNA. Later that day, Dennis was called out to transport an injured airman. Once he arrived at the Air Force Medical Facility, he noticed three ambulances outside the hospital. It wasn't unusual for the ambulances to be parked there. What was unusual was all the doors were open and an MP was guarding them. Naturally, he was curious, so he peeked inside and saw some large metal pieces. Just so you know, whenever the base would test out new equipment and something went wrong, the ambulance would bring in the debris from the crash site and any injured airmen. But on this occasion, he described seeing otherworldly objects sitting in the back. Wanting to know more, Dennis went to the infirmary at the base to find a nurse that he knew, quote, quite well, end quote. Then I had this friend that I wanted to talk to and see. This uh, is the lieutenant nurse that I knew quite well. And this was her first assignment to the air base, and uh, I wanted to talk to her. And so this, I was going down the hall, and the lieutenant that I wanted to see was coming out of one room, going across the hall to the other. And she noticed it with me. She said, how did you get in here? What are you doing in here? And she said, you better get out in a hurry. She said, you're going to get in a lot of trouble. She said, would you please leave and get out of here in a hurry? I turned around, and she went on into the other room. Then in about the time I turned around, there was another officer said, hey, wait a minute. And I said, uh, looks like you had a crash. He said, I see there's some ambulances out there. I see a lot of wreckage. And I said, where was the crash? And he said, there wasn't any crash. He turned around, and because there was another officer coming out, he said, this man says there was a crash out at the base. He was inquiring about our crash. And this was when I encountered, he was a red-headed officer. And uh, very nasty, very uh, rough. He said, uh, you did not see any crash. There was not any crash. He said, you're going to get in hell a lot of trouble. And he said, uh, you get the hell out of here and you didn't see anything and you don't talk to anybody. And I said, look, I'm a civilian and the damn thing you can do to me about it. He said, no, but somebody might be picking your bones out of the sand. Then there was a black sergeant that was standing beside him, and he said, yeah, but he would make better dog food for our dogs. And then there was two MPs that took me outside, and each holding me by my elbows, and they escorted me out back to the ambulance and followed me all the way back to the funeral home. The next day, one of the sergeants contacted the local sheriff, who happened to be a close friend of the Dennis family. They asked about who Dennis was related to, his family, where they were all located. The sheriff called Dennis's dad and said Dennis was in trouble. He reiterated what the sergeant had asked. That's when Dennis told his father the whole story. They decided it'd be best for everyone around them to never speak of it again. The next day, Dennis called back out to the base to try and reach the nurse. He was curious about what was going on, but he was unable to reach her. He finally got in contact with her and she said she had something important to discuss. She asked him to meet her for lunch. So I went on out and met her. 
She was so upset. She looked like she's, you know, in shock is what she really talked like and looked like. And uh, I said, well, I was just curious on what happened. And she said, well, you won't believe it. And she says, I don't believe it either. But she said, uh, I got in a lot of trouble on this thing. Then she pulled out of a little purse or a little pocketbook, whatever she had there. She gave me a little diagram that she had drawn some figures of, uh, of some arms and a face and so on. She told me that, that it was a crash. It wasn't an airplane, but they didn't know what it was. We have three bodies. She said two of them were very mutilated. One looked like it might have lived a, a little while. And she explained they were like three and a half feet to four feet tall. Two of the bodies you couldn't identify much because they were practically destroyed and it looked like maybe they might have been uh, a predatory animal or something might have uh, been doing some damage on the bodies too. The little drawings that I had, she, the way she explained it and the way she drew it, that the heads were somewhat larger than, than a human heads. The hands were long, no thumbs. It was just the long, very delicate fingers. The underside at the tip of each finger was a, maybe a little pad, but it looked like the skin had maybe little suction cups on those. Uh, no fingernails on the hands. The head, the lips were very just a long, narrow, more or less uh, not full lips like we would have in, a, in most of our people, but very fine lips. Uh, there was no teeth that was the inside of the mouth. She said to explain it, it was almost as hard as if it was rawhide. The ears, there was only two small orifices on each side of the head. Looked like a couple of small lobes that might, some way that might cover both of those. But there was not a protruding ear. And also that the nose, there was only two small orifices in the nose. It was, there was really no nose that was uh, convex. It was all just uh, flush with the, uh, the face. This conversation went on for an hour and a half. And she said, I've never been so horrified in my life. I've never seen anything so gruesome in my life. I've never smelt anything that smelt worse in my life. And then she got ill. The doctors also became very ill. They would have to do a little examination, then they'd have to leave and go sit down, and then they would come back and do a little bit more. It was that bad. She said they were black. They were just as black as they could be, but probably laying out in the elements in, in July in Roswell with 105 to 110 temperature every day and 80 degrees or so at night. I mean, that's not that wouldn't be uncommon because we picked up a lot of sheep herds of people that have been found dead that's laying in the desert, you know, for days and didn't or rattlesnakes or whatever. And they do turn, you know, as black as they can. I know exactly what they were talking about because uh, with the smell and the odor being so drastic because this is a very unpleasant situation, you know. Well, I thought it was interesting also. The doctor said their skull bone structure wasn't like ours. It wasn't a, actually a bone. It was probably a real heavy cartilage. It looked more or less like a newborn baby. The skull was very pliable. You could mash on the skull and it would, you know, it would give. The arm bones, like the radial yellow and in the arm, that uh, it was so fine that he doubted if they could lift 50 pounds on the earth or anywhere else. You know, they doubted they had that strength. But she said, what, the one that hadn't been mutilated to a great extent, it reminded him of a real small ancient Chinese person. No hair at all. Very, very uh, delicate skin. In fact, he said the skin would look like they could almost see through it, almost transparent. 
And this was another thing that the lieutenant brought out, the difference between theirs and ours, from the wrist to the first joint here, that it was probably one and a half times longer than the top part up here. It was very odd, she said. We were talking about the wrist bones and everything, and she said it was very similar to ours, but the bones were so small that that their bones probably wasn't in, in the arm wasn't any larger than my finger. And she told me that when I saw her, she was leaving the room to go to the bathroom because she was deathly ill and was going to throw up. So, But she said she walked in the room and they said, hey, we need you, you need to help us. And uh, that was the way she became involved in it. Over the next few days, he called her several times. Anybody he got a hold of kept saying she was unavailable. He was finally able to get a hold of somebody that would give him information, and they said that she had been transferred. This was odd because she'd only been at the base for about four months. Then about two weeks, I got a letter addressed to me at Glendennis at the Ballard Funeral Home. Uh, didn't have any returned address or anything on it, but inside of the letter, it was just a note. She said, I don't have time to write. I will write later. This is my APO number. And that was, that was the extent of it. So then I wrote back to her and uh, asking her more or less how, you know, how she was feeling and why the sudden transfer, and then I hoped that she wasn't in any trouble. It was just a short note. I really didn't go into a lot of detail or anything. Then probably three weeks or probably a month after that, then I got the letter that I had mailed to her. It was returned, it was stamped return. On then red printing it said deceased. And that's the last time I ever heard anything about it. Dennis wouldn't speak of the events surrounding June 1947 for the next 40 years. In the following days, virtually every witness to the crash wreckage and the subsequent recovery efforts was either abruptly transferred or seemed to disappear from the face of the earth. This led to suspicions that an extraordinary event was the subject of a deliberate government cover-up. Over the years, books, interviews, and articles from a number of military personnel who had been involved with the incident have added to the suspicions of a deliberate cover-up. Will we ever know the truth about what happened in Roswell, New Mexico in June 1947? Probably not, but I'll always be somewhat skeptical. Like and subscribe, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and join us next time for our first series as we try to find out the truth of a conspiracy that's been haunting us for the past 50 years. Today's podcast has been brought to you by Green Shoe Studio.